Welcome to That's Marketing Baby, the weekly show where two marketing besties talk all things marketing in the world of B2B and B2C. I'm your co-host, Susan Winograd, and I've spent over 20 years in marketing focusing on paid media and email marketing. And I'm Jess Cook, copywriter and creative director turned content marketer. Every week, we'll tackle a topic that's on our minds and hopefully yours too. Ready? Let's go. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Aircule. Aircule is an agency focused solely on organic growth for B2B SaaS brands. I've worked with them before, and I can tell you I've never felt so confident and in control of my content strategy, SEO, and analytics. They also have this great free tool, Automo, that translates Google Analytics into actual usable data. Which pages are killing it, which ones are declining, and what you can do about it. Check them out and give Automo a whirl at E-R-C-U-L-E dot C-O. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of That's Marketing Baby. I'm Jess Cook. I'm Susan Winograd. And we're really excited today. We have an incredible guest. The amazing Emrita Mather is here. She is the VP of Marketing at ClickUp. And before that was the VP of Marketing at Superside. You may have heard of those companies, small household names. And uh, she is here to tell us about what it's like to build teams and to grow companies of that size and stature. So thank you so much uh, for coming to talk to us on our little podcast here, Amrita. Well, thank you for having me. This is like my favorite thing to jam on. So it's perfect. This is, we'll just freewheel it. Amazing. Love it. Can you tell us a little bit, just give us like the two minute background on yourself and how you got to where you are today? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I wish I could have like a playbook for this or something. But <laughs> no, yeah, just, you know, kind of been in tech my whole life, uh, been in on the B2B side for a long time, never done the B2C thing. I'm always tempted. And then I'm just like, yeah, but everything in B2C is about brand. And like, I, I don't know if I'm that person. So yeah, I've kind of uh, just hopped around a bunch of different companies, mostly done growth stage startups like you know it's like they found product market fit and now they're ready to scale and then they usually bring me in to be like okay we need the machine right <laughs> but at superside which was like where i was for four years just previously i joined them super early like pre-product they were like zero recurring revenue they had some acv and they had a product out there that wasn't like necessarily a subscription product so they had some hypotheses but you know, super early stage. Like I think our company was like maybe 40 people, 30 people at the time. Uh, so I joined them super early stage together with, you know, sales and product. And of course our CEO, who is amazing by the way, and has like a perfect marketing and economics brain. We can, we can talk about that later, why that combo works. Yeah, grew the business to 45 million just before I left on track to do 50 this year. So pretty good growth story. Zero to 50 in four years or four and a half years is kind of not that common in tech, which is bizarre to me, but yeah, apparently it's a thing. So did that. And then now I'm at ClickUp. I've only been here three weeks. ClickUp is way more established. I've never worked at a company like this, like ever. And there's a guy for everything. Like, oh, I want some data on blah, blah, blah. Can you help me pull this from the data lake snowflake and put this in the tableau? There's a guy, there's a guy, there's a guy for everything. So I mean, that's kind of cool, uh, sort of. And yet at the same time, there's like, you know, they, they're like super established business, like 160 million, like they raised 400 million a couple years ago. They get like 6,000 signups a day for their freemium product, which- Unreal. You know, that's crazy. 
a day and they convert like a quite a large percentage to like trials and so on and so forth. But yet, even with all of that, there's so much opportunity. And honestly, there's so much broken. And you would expect that at every company. Like obviously there's always stuff that's broken and needs to be improved. But there's a lot of stuff broken. So now I'm like, in three weeks, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be useless. I have a job. <laughs> <laughs> job security. That is good. And with you, there's they can only go up. So that's amazing. Tell us a bit about the team that you have inherited there and maybe what you're thinking kind of 30, 60, 90 plan. Yeah, honestly, oh, 90 days just seems so far out. But <laughs> Well, 30, 60 yeah. then. Yeah. So they're they're unique in the sense, or maybe not that unique actually, but I think a lot of companies that achieve scale, like I always look back at like companies that I, like tools that I use. So I look at Atlassian, I look at HubSpot, I look at Figma and how they grew and blah, 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 because I'm familiar with the product. And I think a lot of them, Notion included, they all find groundswell kind of with like almost like a consumer audience and maybe a micro and SMB audience, right? And then they say, okay, we've got a bed of customers. We have product market fit, at least with the subset of them. Now we have a beachhead strategy. Now let's go after other ICPs, other markets, maybe go up market, so on and so forth. That's every company. Like every company that's yeah. made it has kind of done it like this, right? So ClickUp is in the same boat. They have really good product market fit with like a couple of ICPs. But because they're such a horizontal product in the sense that, I mean, they're sort of, if you don't know ClickUp, they're in the same, they overlap a lot with Asana and Monday, like like a huge amount of overlap, but they also overlap with Notion and Smartsheets and Airtable and a whole yeah. bunch of other people in this productivity suite of things. So that's the TLDR on ClickUp. So they, they do a bunch of things from in the productivity sphere, but they're a horizontal product, which means it's not like they're known in any specific industry yep. or any specific ICP or team. Like it's not like marketing teams are like, oh, I love ClickUp or there's no like engineering team that's like, oh, I love ClickUp. Like it's like they, some, some engineering teams use us, some finance teams use us, some marketing teams use us. It's, it's all over the place. So there's no depth or rather like stronghold from a market perspective. So that's that's something that you know we need to sort out and figure out what are the campaigns we're going to run, who do we actually want to go after. That's like part of like the first three months plan, and then I guess the second piece is that they have the mid market, I should say, micro and SMB machine quite figured out. They're quite good at that. So what my boss, the chief growth officer, has decided is that because there's so much heavy lifting to be done on like figuring out how to go up market, he's actually put a lot of teams in that bucket. And he said, okay, down market, the machine is built, you guys do whatever you're doing, but it's like a smaller, more ragtag team, because they're kind of in maintenance and optimization mode, not really building mode. So from a function perspective, I have taken over supporting, basically product marketing, all of content marketing, which is a whole thing we can talk about on the show, given your guys' uh, areas <laughs> of interest, and just sort of like life cycle and like field marketing as well. Those are like the sort of three, four factions that have all moved into this upmarket team. We call ourselves upmarketing, like upmarket marketing. We call ourselves <laughs> up Perfect. Marketing. I love it. What is that called? Where they put like Benefer together? What's that called? Portmanteau. It's a nice little portmanteau. Oh, I didn't even know there was a name. Yeah, there's a name for that. Content person. That's right. (laughs) There's a name for these things. (laughs) How many people are on that up marketing team? I haven't done the count, but um, something like 
20. Wow. Okay. Yeah, maybe 15. Because that's amazing. There's also what what they've also done uniquely at ClickUp is that inside the growth org, they have shared services. There's like teams that service other teams. So creative, as you can imagine, which is Mm -hmm. often the case, but also ops and like CRM, like they are shared. They sit separately and they and the down market and the up market team shares them. Got it. So let's say we were like, hey, we want to send this drip, this complicated drip to like this group of, you know, MQLs or whatever to make them into PQLs or hand raised or whatever. You know, we might come up with a strategy, but the actual execution of it would be like the CRM team. So Got it. that's not included in any of any of our teams. Yeah, but still sizable team. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I'm not necessarily used to that many people like at SuperSide, our team grew quite a bit. But even then, the core team, if you don't include the BDRs and like the creatives was still like maybe 10 of us, like the actual strategists and program owners were like maximum 10, maybe yeah. eight actually. So this is definitely like more sizable than I'm used to. But yeah, there's like everyone's overflowing with all sorts of work to be done. So just yeah. I, I think that's always the case. I think it's like you have a bigger house, you just fill it with stuff, even if you didn't have the stuff to begin with. It's the same thing when you grow your team, you still fill it with work, right? Like you find a way. It just always happens like that. Yeah, yeah. And the goals are like quite scaled and like the level of operation is totally different, right? So everyone has to fire on all cylinders and you're doing like the maintenance stuff of like whatever you built last year or the quarter before, but then you're also like standing up new programs all the time because guess what? The target for Q4 is a lot bigger than it's just like, it's the the whole operation is like at a totally different scale. Yeah. Yeah. But the good news is the company is like very, they're thinking very thoroughly about efficiency. And so they don't want any more extra spend, extra bodies, extra blah, 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 you know, like things were, I think, quite different in the last couple of years. We've all experienced like hyper growth and like lots of free money yep. and whatnot, but they're just like, nope, pare down. We're only going to do the things that actually matter. If this doesn't work, we cut it. See you later. Yeah. So that's good. That's nice to see. That's smart. Yeah. That's how I think at least. Totally. I wrote down a note and I wanted to come back to this. The market marketing and economy brain that you said your, is that your manager you said? Has? Yeah. So, so my old boss at SuperSide, ah, yes. okay. the CEO, who's also the founder, Frederick, I've never encountered someone like him. I hope he doesn't listen to this, but I was like fascinated because he had like such a marketing brain. Like he could jump into like deep conversations about all sorts of stuff in marketing, like everything from performance marketing to search to content marketing to ABM stuff and whatnot. And yet he was like, an economist by training and he went to like London School of Economics and all that. So like literally in real time, we'd be in a one-on-one and we'd be like talking about, hey, is the LTV still the same for the segment, blah, blah, blah. And he'd like build a model in a spreadsheet right in front of me and plug in all these numbers. And it would be, I would be like, what is happening? Like, and he'd be like creating all these formulas and whatever. And like literally in a 20 minute meeting at the end of it, he'd have a graph that would show like how, which cohort was trending, how, and he'd be like, yeah. Okay. Now, now we know where to focus. And I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so happy you're here because <laughs> you know, this just tells me like, this gives us focus, but also yeah. gives us the backing that these are the decisions we need to make. So honestly, like that opened my eyes because I was like, this is a skill set that I don't have. I can't operate at that level. And either I need to hire for that, or I need to have like a RevOps partner who's like really, really good at that. And like can proactively tell us these types of things. So that was quite enlightening, but that was very cool to see in a CEO and his, he could like 
the altitude that he could like traverse, like all the way to be like being super high level and thinking about what's the strategic narrative for the company. And then just like go deep and like, how do we get a backlink for this blog post? You know, and it's like, (laughs) all right, okay. That's amazing. Yeah, I think especially like you say, it gives you the proof that sometimes you need to walk into a room with and be like, this is why we made this decision. And that that's a really tough skill for marketers, especially to to pick up for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. I am. I know something I've always been really in awe of with you is you, I think, I've heard you talk about this on a couple other podcasts or, or just in our conversations. You're really well known for one of the metrics that you pay attention to is payback period. Mm. And I don't feel like a whole lot of like marketing leaders pay as much attention to that. So I would love for you to talk about like, how did you come to realize that was a really important thing to measure? And like, how are you, how are you implementing that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question, actually. I think marketers have become wiser to that more recently. I think for a long time, we were all obsessed with like, what's the number for acquisition? And how do I generate pipelines, which are absolutely important. And then we also obsessed over CPL and and whatnot, or, or CAC. I think the payback period thing is all of that combined in one metric. It's basically like, if you're going to do this new thing, you're going to stand up a new program, some new endeavor, how do you think about how that's going to be successful? And traditionally, I would be like, okay, let me model this out. We've done something like this before. This is what it yielded. And by the way, these leads converted, like, you know, classic waterfall funnel. And so that would be how I would do it. And then I just learned over time that that is okay, but it still doesn't allow you to compare each program to the other program efficiently. The only way I could say, I have 10 things I can do. If I have 10 things I can do, how do I compare all of them? That was where I was getting stuck, right? And I was like, there's got to be a rubric, a metric that tells me of the slew, something that unifies them. And I found payback period to be like the best thing on that, because it actually says, if you do this for this dollar that you spend, you are going to pay it back in three months, six months, 10 months, whatever that is. And based on your tolerance and risk appetite, you could decide, oh, is this worth doing or not? And or and is it worth sunsetting something else that you might have been doing? So that just became like um like an easy way to decide. You know, it's like like a classic example was we decided to go down the ABM rabbit hole, but ABM can be like very hard to stand up. You have to give it many, many quarters and months to like make successful. You have to hire bodies. Like we had never hired an SDR before. So we were like, ah, oh, you got to go hire. And if it doesn't work out, then what are we going to do with them? And like, it's not fair to like, let them go. And it was like horrible. It was just, so we did this like pilot program that failed. There's some glimmers of hope, but it failed and yada, yada. And then the way we resolved that over time was just to say, okay, we're not, we're going to do all this work. And yeah, it could go to shit. But if we can, every deal, every whale, like we're only going to focus ABM on hunting the whales. And if every whale that we hunt, if, if the payback is such that we can pay it back within like six months, because it's a whale, we were able to talk. It's not actually, sorry, it was more than six months. It's no, our payback period across the board was about six to eight months. We were like, we were willing to tolerate 12 months payback period for the ABM program specifically. That was how we defined what success was. And that gave the team the ability to go do what they need to do without this repercussion of, oh my God, our our you know standard payback period is ballooned through the roof because, oh my God, we've hired all these people and our costs have gone up and it's harder to hunt the whales. So I think that just normalizes the conversations and like allows t- teams to like know like where they can take risk and where they can't. And yeah, that's just... 
that's just something that I've brought myself, you know, brought with me to ClickUp as well. ClickUp actually already thinks kind of like that, maybe not at the program level, but yeah, it's a good metric for- It'd be helpful if more places did that. <laughs> I think there's, yeah. to your point, it is very much, especially, you know, in like B2B startup world, it kind of, in the beginning, you're really just running on the treadmill and it's like, let's just get people signed up as quickly as we can. And then after a while- those nuances of like, well, they signed up, but they're not, they're not the ICP we want. Like as the ICP and what you're trying to do becomes clearer, sometimes I feel like we're still lacking that the economic influence from the financials. You know what I mean? We're, we kind of like get like, oh, we can acquire for this. Yeah. But especially like on the paid media side, I'm like, but could we acquire for more if we know that they stay longer? And a lot of times exactly. things like things like LTV and all of that, like a lot of times that doesn't come over as much in the communication of what the goals are. And I came from B2C. So that was my background for like the first half of my career. So it's like I'm very used to knowing like every little financial detail. Like I know cart values and AOVs and return rate and all of that stuff. So in the B2B world, when that's not communicated, I I felt very uncomfortable at first because I'm going, okay, we can, we're trying to acquire people for this, but how long do they stay? And mm. a lot of times that just was not communicated for whatever reason was just not shared with the marketing team as much. I think to your point, like you said, that's changing, but it's definitely still something I find I have to proactively kind of ask for just to understand mm. And it may not necessarily change my goals, but it sure yeah. gives me much better perspective about what it is I'm going after and how long it might take. And does it make sense for things to take that long, et cetera? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Yeah, and I do think like B2C people are a little bit ahead on stuff like this normally. I think because they deal with like millions of technical customers, right? Like whereas in B2B, you know, I mean, if I think about Superside, we would create like 100 or 200 opportunities a month, right? And we mm -hmm. had 500 customers or 600 customers total. And it's just yeah. like not the same scale in terms of like volume of like people to deal with. So I think yeah, the other thing, it's like also in B2C, it's like you're dealing with widgets that have a very set cost to create. Mm. Yeah. So you know what I mean? It's like there's nuances in far, as far as like how long it takes to sell things. Like, you know, luxury items might take, you know, four to six months or whatever, but you kind of know what that looks like. You know, it's very, because mm -hmm. you, you know, there's just, it's a lot clearer because they're not dealing with the salesperson. There's not that like soft middle of funnel thing. There's not a pass off from marketing to sales. It's just yeah. kind of to pass off for marketing and the site handles the rest. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's a much more transactional environment. And so things are much more clear cut. I feel like B2B has tried to do that with things like lead scoring and all that, but it's still imperfect because it just involves more, it's human stuff, right? And it's like, yeah. it's very difficult to measure human things. Whereas, you know, e-com and D2C, it's just very like, here's the thing. Do you want the thing? And yeah. <laughs> this is what it cost us to make it. Here's what we sold it for. So this was our margin, right? It's, it's very, very, very math driven. And it's very unemotional. I feel it's oddly, it's like, I feel like it's e-com is in B2C. It's very, it's emotional in that it's stressful. Yeah. But I feel like when it comes to the numbers and what's working and not working. The market, unit economics are the unit economics. Yes, yeah. it's so much more well. straightforward. It's so yeah. much more straightforward. With B2B, there's usually a very long like educational curve. You yeah. know, there's so much, and a lot of it's demand gen. Like a lot of times with e-com, you're solving a problem that people are already trying already to fix. Already exists. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I was like in B2B, you're fixing problems that people don't even know there's a solution for yet, right? So yeah, like in that, on that not sense, always. yeah, it's exciting because sometimes you're like a category creator, but other times it makes it that much harder because you're like, they don't even know what this thing is. So now there's this whole lead time of just explaining what the hell this thing even does. Totally. So yeah, it's it's interesting. It's much more like, abstract all, on the B2B side. Yes, agreed. All yeah. of it, right? Yeah. yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah, because like often the B2B companies that 
solve like big problems. It's an existing problem, but it's like a new solution to that existing problem. Yeah. Or it's a problem that no one considered. Like you were saying, Susan, like they didn't consider they had that problem in the first place. Yeah. I actually like a great example of that is like, I think about this company like Clary. I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah. with them. Yeah. Read. And, yeah. and I'm always like, which one are they? Did they solve an existing problem or did they create the problem and the solution? Actually, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know if you if you guys have a take on that. I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. The, the, That's not my world. I don't know enough about that company or that problem. It's like when you see, I think the, the kings and queens of that were like the heyday of the Facebook ads, mm. where you'd see these weird things that people were drop shipping off of Alibaba or like directly. <laughs> and you're just like, I don't think I actually need that, but that would really make my life interesting. Like you'd see like the flip flops with like the brushes on the bottom that you could just put <laughs> in the shower and like move your feet back and forth to clean them. They have all these weird pet products. Yeah. To yeah. Point, yeah. Like it's not necessarily a problem, but yeah. I wouldn't mind having that to make that part of my life easier. You know, there's like yeah. that fine line between is it a problem or is it like a, a first world nice to have, right? Yeah. Is it <laughs> a product shoes? in search of a problem? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. So funny. I think, again, in B2C, they have nailed that. Like, absolutely. All the QVC stuff, all of the Alibaba stuff. Yeah. Like, half the time, it's like, does anyone need this? But but they still do millions of dollars in sales. Yep. Yeah. I feel like in B2B, like, it, that's the challenging but also fun part. Like, mm -hmm. it is fun. Like, even at ClickUp, like, it's only been three weeks. But, like, it's fun to think about, hey, what is that strategic narrative that we want? Like, how are we going to differentiate? Like, we're in a sat somewhat saturated space. Gigantic TAM. Gigantic yeah. TAM. But how are we going to differentiate from Asana, Monday, or Table Notion, et cetera? Like, how do we stand out from the crowd? How do people think about us? What is yeah. the emotional hook and connection? Like, all of that stuff is so fun and so interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. That's Marketing Baby is sponsored by Teal. If you're a B2B marketer looking to make your next right career move, Teal can help you leapfrog your resume to the top of the stack. Their AI resume builder helps you tailor your resume to specific open positions fast. All you have to do is import your resume or LinkedIn profile one time, and Teal does the rest. It even uses AI to rephrase your experience and achievements so they really pop. Even better, it's free to get started at tealhq.com. All right, back to the show. Something Susan and I spend a lot of time talking about on the show, because she's like the media brain and I'm on the content side and we always try to like find kind of the, the middle of the Venn diagram there and talking about kind of paid and organic. So I'd love to know like in your mind and what you've seen at Superside and what you kind of intend to do at ClickUp, the yin and yang of organic versus paid, like how do you look at one to inform the other? That's a big question. It's a big question. And I feel like this comes up a lot. This is like the simplest way I think about it is like, you need both. You absolutely need both. You can't survive. Like anyone that's like, oh, I can grow this business organically. Sure. Maybe for some time. Yeah. You need both. But I think it, the actual like larger question that we don't talk about enough is more like, what are the offers and call it campaigns or asset or oh, let's call it the offer. Actually, a better term is pipe and fuel. Like what is mm, the pipe? Yeah. Let's say it's a Facebook ad or let's say it's search or let's say whatever, right? What is the pipe and what is the fuel? And pipe fuel fit is really important. That's what I try to figure out ASAP. I don't I don't worry so much about is it organic versus paid? I mean, mm. later, later I'll yeah, figure yeah, yeah. it out. But it's more like, does this offer fit with this pipe? Does this like this content, does it fit with this YouTube strategy, this this huge pipe that we have? And 
if I can make that work, then the paid versus organic thing is almost arbitrary. Like, what mm. is that? If it works organically, then I pump like dollars against it and like make it go viral or like have a lot more people see it or what have you, right? So I think it's like, yeah, I, you said yin and yang. I kind of feel like they're like two peas in a pot, like they're parallel yeah. tracks. You know, they're not opposites, they're parallel. And some things will do better organically and some things will do better with a bit of paid help. And sometimes you have to start with paid to get the organic and vice versa. So, but as long as like the fuel fits the pipe, that's like step one. And then you worry about how are you getting distribution and eyeballs? Does that, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, that's beautiful. You like took it and flipped it on its head. That was great. Loved it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a politician. It's like, you ask that, I'm going to give you a different answer. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow you still answered the question. It was really lovely. Something that I think, like, I know you helped build it Superside was just the quality of the marketing that came out of there in terms of just like the polish and the consistency and the creativity. Mm. And I think when you saw something from Superside, it was like, oh, that's from Superside. Like it was very clear every time. Yes. Right down to like little things that I noticed where, and I actually shared this with my team on Slack one time, I would drop a link from Superside into Slack and the unfurl image. Yeah. Beautiful, perfect size, easy to read, right down to those details, right? And so I would love to know, like, with the, because that was a decently sized team I think you had over there. How did you balance like quality, creativity, and speed to always deliver like every time? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. So number one, given the nature of what Superside did, like we were a design at scale company. So we knew that in order to sell this product, we needed to exude that ourselves. So obsession all the way down to the details was like obsession with creative and consistent creative was like a non-negotiable. Like that was absolute non-negotiable given what we did. I think if Superside was not Superside, it was a different company. Maybe we could have like let that go a few times. But it was not a negotiable thing. Uh, The team knew that. And they were like, they knew if I caught it, it'd be like game over. So (laughs) everyone was like, ah, it's got to be good. But I think beyond that, I'd say like the need for speed was like real. And we really optimized for that. Our creative director that we ended up hiring, actually like he had really good video chops, but then he's just such a great jack of all trades that he just stretched and took on like everything else. He totally got it. Like he... I think like this is the thing with creatives, I feel, and sorry for all the creatives listening here. Like I, this is not disparaging. This is just like how you guys are made up. Like the, you're, you're wired a certain way. I think what he got, and I love him for this, is that he saw creative as a part of the marketing and growth machine. And he aligned every single person on his team to at least one or two mini machines. So he was like, okay, like Alex, you're the animator. So most of your skills are going to go to the ads team. So you're perfectly aligned with the performance marketing team. You're going to go to those meetings, by the way. And similarly, oh, you know, our illustrator and whatever, you're aligned to the content marketing team because you need to actually help them with blog posts and eBooks and webinars and whatnot. And they would come to those meetings and so on and so forth. So he had like people in these like cross-functional work streams with everybody else on marketing. And because those creatives understood what was happening and what the numbers were and 
they, the speed thing was like just naturally solved, like organically solved. It was beautiful. It took some time to get there. Like, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like overnight. And, you know, there was some pain and like people complained about each other and blah, blah, blah all the time. Like, oh, marketing always gives me the brief late, the classic standard stuff. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But then that just fell apart eventually because they were just all in the same rituals. So that's amazing. But yeah, yeah, for us, it was like the non-negotiable was like a table stake. So that was like obviously how it was going to be. And we created a lot of like templates for like standard, like uh, repeatable things. And then the need for speed was the second piece. And I think like, I think if I'm being honest, we kind of hacked the creativity piece. I think what looks super creative and original to people outside maybe was way more process driven than it really looks to other people. Like we... We knew, for example, UGC style, skit style ads work for us. Like we had gotten to that place where we were like, that works for us. So we said to ourselves, okay, the formula is 50% of other media that we put out there is going to be this skit style media. Okay, great. We have a video, a small video studio set up in uh, Toronto. So we're going to shoot everything there because it's just like, like literally you can shoot it in four hours, throw it up, test it, see what happens. And then if it doesn't work, then you have a slew of, you know, other stuff that you can test. So that process just became so repeatable and it looks like super original and creative, but I mean, we just we just knew the formula. 50% has to be skits. These are the type of topics we like always do the skits on, you know, small variations here and there. We knew like the punchlines. We knew the message that we had to come across. All of that was in a spreadsheet. And then the team could just churn that out. That's amazing. And I think those are the kind of things that happen when you bring creative into the business process. Because I think where you were going with like, hey, creatives don't take this personally is like, they're not always plugged in. They're often an afterthought, right? Content and everybody else and and everyone on the team aligns to a strategy, content goes off and writes it. And then they're like, here, like just make this look good, right? Exactly. And they don't understand the why. They don't know even like the business, like reason we're doing this thing. Yeah. And so- and They're not involved at the no. layer. They're just, yeah, like sometimes, I mean- it's not just as simple as bringing them into the conversation. Like they literally have to be in and out of all of the same meetings and yes. with you. But I don't think I've never seen, maybe it's like this at some innovative companies, but I don't actually see, like, let's say I had to do that at ClickUp. That would be incredibly hard for me to know which creative to invite to which meeting as an, just as an example. Sure. Cause there's no alignment of like this person with that squad and this faction or whatever. There's no alignment. It's just like a bunch of people that work on all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And they have like like a classic ticketing system in place. Like it's with I think that setup doesn't allow for the creative to have the full context. No matter how good the brief is, they just yeah. won't have the full context. And to be honest, they won't give a shit. Like I yeah. think they're doing they're like checking off the box, the to-do box, but they won't actually give a shit. But when you're in that ritual with your buddies who you know and you've been doing team exercises this whole time and you see the numbers pop up and you're like, woohoo, we nailed that, right? That's a different feeling. And I think to, to Jess's point, it's like the problem is by the time they're handed something, it sounds like it's a box to check. Do you know what box. I mean? It's kind of like 95% yes. of it's done. It's like, can you just we just need a visual for this? So it's yeah. like it doesn't yeah, I will inspire them. For you. Make this a video. Yeah, yeah 100%. I'm like, I'm like how, how they wouldn't be able to treat it as anything but that because they're like, oh, okay, you don't really actually need my expertise or my input. You just, you want a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make the thing. Yeah. That was all, my list of questions, Susan. I don't know if you had anything else. Or Amrita, if you have anything that you were like, I got to talk about this on this show. Yeah, no, I mean, we could talk a bit about like the role of, I should interview you guys because I'm I'm trying to figure out if you have no... Okay, we talked about pipe and fuel, right? If you have no fuel, 
like let's say you have zero fuel where do you start that is my conundrum Jess right and now. i had to do that actually <laughs> please tell me when we worked yeah. together that was our role when we worked together they had hired jess first and it was funny because the first few months it, it was hard because on the, the paid side i didn't have anything to promote yet because we didn't even like we had both just started there was no yeah. content i mean there was nothing and I think it worked out well because I told Jess, I'm like, I've written before. So if you have, she's like, oh my God, thank God. <laughs> so it's like, we, we were able to kind of collaborate on some of that stuff to at least nice. help it go faster, or have ideas. And so it was, some of it was a waiting game where at least on the, the paid side, it was very much, you know, they had just gotten around to funding. So it's like, let's spend it and start trying to get demos lined up. So it was much more like transactional in nature, which you know, those things check the box of like, oh, we have these MQLs, but the show up rate is very low, which was what I suspected was going to happen. So it's like, you know, the, the front end metrics looked great, but it wasn't translating into anything actionable. And then that was in like, uh, I started in October, I guess. Yeah. And Just I started, started in September. September. So by January, we kind of felt confident, like, oh, good. We, Informed. Yeah. yeah. Like we we yeah. have this plan that we think is going to work great. And we had spent that, a quarter just like <laughs> pumping out good content. Yeah. Amazing. What yeah. kind of content, just as an example? So I was going to say, I think part of it is like finding kind of that point of coalescence of like the most impact. So like the ICP that is most likely to like book a demo or sign up for a trial in the, you know, the industry use case that is most likely to like really love the product, right? Like just kind of finding the stars that align. And then like, what are the stories that you have to tell those people to like get them to choose you? So I think that's kind of where we we found that, right? Susan was like, we know it's performance marketers for this specific case at Marpipe. We know it's performance marketers. We those know- my, Those are my people. So it's- <laughs> Yeah. And Susan like, is that? So it was like, okay, check. Like, they're great. very dry. They're very sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're highly jaded individuals. <laughs> Beautiful. So, like just appeal to their sarcasm. And that, that was yeah. actually what wound up working. Like the memes that we yeah. created did great. Nice. Yeah. Um, and they weren't polished. I mean, it was not, I mean, we, memes aren't so, supposed to be. Yeah. No. Well, what was funny is we had tested like really polished looking stuff. And then it wasn't until we launched the memes, those went, cause everybody started tagging their coworkers and they're like, yeah. oh my God, it's us. And like, that's when that stuff took off. But part of the thing on the paid side too, is that we were like, okay, we have, the, we've been building up this good content, but we also weren't at the point yet where we're like, we really want to put money towards amplifying it because if there's not enough other content, it's like they come for the one thing and then- And then they're done. <laughs> and then they're done. I was, you know, we were kind of like, you know, I think at that point, the newsletter had just started like once a month. And so we yeah. weren't even at the point where we're like, let's get everybody on that yet. So it took months to kind of felt like we had a machine running that we're like, okay, now let's just start inserting emails into it and start building this thing. Nice. But we switched actually like our whole strategy at that point. We stopped going after trying to book demos and right. we focused pretty much all of our media on, on content amplification, off. building our nice. newsletter list. And it went so well. That was when Jess and I were like, will you marry me in marketing? Like, I <laughs> Never don't leave with anybody me. Else. <laughs> so, but that was kind of, we, you know, we kind of had to parallel path it. And I would have preferred to have saved the media money, honestly. But it's just also, you know, understandably, it's a high pressure environment at a startup to like show investors that you're booking whatever. So we kind of had to do that dance a little bit of like, yeah, we're building MQLs, we're testing. We certainly learned a lot about, you know, what it took to, to sell the product on social and everything. But once we had the content, that was when things really started becoming a little more predictable. I think that was the mm -hmm. other part was like the predictability mm -hmm. of like you could say after after a certain amount of time, you were able to say like, oh, if I spend this much yeah. on this tofu asset and we get this many leads, that'll convert at this rate. Yeah. And we knew we knew if someone was on the newsletter for four months, they were those are the most likely people to convert. 
Yeah. Right. Oh so it was God, like, that's such a yeah, good aha moment. Cause then yeah. it was, Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Well, so that was why we pumped all the money into the newsletter. Well, and, it, and it proved out the value of it too. Like, I feel like mm, there's yeah. the struggle that I always have as a paid media person is like, I've always been a holistic marketer. So it's like, I can spend the paid media money, but it's like, I always look, I want to see the end result. Cause it's like, if it's not coming out of the machine to what we want, there's no point in stuffing money. Yeah. In what's it in service of? Right. Yeah. I'm like, what, what's the point of this? So when we started seeing like the engagement was really high in the newsletter, the open rate was good. We're like, these seem to be the right people. And so then we started building HubSpot reports where it would show like how many of the demo requested we get are also a marketing contact. Mm -hmm. And then we would pull the date when they joined versus the date when the demo happened. And that was how we started figuring out like, when did they join the list and how long mm -hmm. did it take them to convert to a demo? So mm. then it was like you were saying it made the forecasting easier because we're like, okay, we know it's costing, you know, and there were, uh, there was obviously waste on the list where it's like, there were people that were not our ICP, yeah, but we were course. able to kind of get down to like, this is how much it costs to get an ICP on the list. We know within four months, X percent of them are going to ask for a demo of those, this many will close. So it started to get easier to understand. It's like the hardest part in the beginning is you start spending, everyone's like, well, where are the MQLs? We're, we're like, just give it, you have to wait. <laughs> like, just, yeah. we, we're like, they're coming. <laughs> we know they are coming. Well, and they know. finally did. They all kind of started hitting it once. Like, yeah, but it took nice. about 90 days, I would say. I mean, we started yeah. pushing it. Long. No, no, we started pushing it pretty hard in like May, March, April, I think was when we yeah. really turned all the media over. And then we started seeing the meetings spike in like June, July. So, yeah. and then it was That's a great was, story. Yeah, it was, it was more consistent after that. It's like, we felt yeah. like we could consistently say, Hey, probably be getting between X and X MQLs per month. And this is yeah. about what they will cost. So, yeah. And, and I think a lot of it was, we knew the story we had to tell was everybody's AB testing ads. Like the thing with Marpipe was you could multivariate tests. So you could yeah. throw 40 ads into the space, right? and see which one worked and know exactly why. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it was just education around like, what even is it? How does it work? Why is it different? And then we just kind of built like everything around that case studies focused on that, right? Like the mm -hmm. differences and like the little things that they found to be like, unbelievably uh, performant for them. And, and so it was like, once we kind of knew like, okay, that's the story. And this is the best place to tell it. And like, we just had we built this really beautiful little funnel of like, once you become a newsletter, then you get the subscriber, hmm. you know, odds are, you know, after four months, this percentage of them are going to convert. So yeah. it's really, it's really lovely. I, I love that. But it's, I, I mean, I feel like it's 50, 50 when you start from scratch, if it's going to get there, you know what right. I mean? Cause it takes so long to test. You have, there has to be like a culture of patience for understanding that like there isn't, we're starting from nothing. So it's like, we have, even if something fails, we just have to learn something. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and even if we're learning that this didn't work, yeah. That's one step closer to figuring out what does. So And did you just, have backup? Like let's say that failed. What what would you do in that situation? Usually we would just kind of pivot. I mean, there were certainly things we tested that just didn't work. And luckily we were in an environment where we could just be like, that didn't work. And we didn't have a shortage of ideas, right? Like yeah. it was like, if that didn't work, I've got seven other things that are in my brain yeah. in and this that document. was fine. Like it was yeah. it was expected. I mean, that was kind of the benefit of working for a software company that does testing because they know yeah. that it's all about just testing. So you know what it, I mean? Yeah. So there, there was never, we were very, had a lot of freedom really to test kind of whatever nice. we thought might work, which was nice. We weren't really, because it wasn't a big company, we weren't constrained by like, oh, it has to have this gradient on the brand and it has to, we didn't have to obsess over like lots of small details. It was like, just push it out there don't let perfect be the enemy of good. <laughs> just get it out there and yeah. let's just learn something. So we were, it was, we were lucky we were in that kind of environment. Yeah, no, that is super cool. And like, if I could just ask one last question about that, given that you were starting from scratch, 
where, if you think about like the funnel, where in the funnel did you choose to concentrate? Assuming you got your biopersona ICP figured out, industry figured out, where in the funnel? Like, did you start with top, middle, bottom? We started more at the top first because we were trying to figure out the targeting. That was kind of the biggest thing was we had not limited funds. I mean, it was a healthy enough budget, but we certainly didn't have unlimited ways to test it. So we were kind of like, we knew that the content was right because we're like, when we put it into newsletters or put it into things, the engagement's there. Mm. The thing that was hard was this was like post iOS 14. So it became a question of like, how do we target in ways that are going to be trackable, efficient? And that was part of the reason the newsletter worked well was because it was a more top of funnel thing. If if we had gotten a bunch of newsletter signups that didn't convert to anything, we wouldn't have kept doing it. But Mm. that was just a higher up signal that we could start with to be like, where are our people? And Mm. we deliberately, when we did top of funnel, we built in like a question that would help us understand, is this our ICP or not? So mm-hmm. as we were getting it, we're like, is the targeting right? Are we getting who we want? Once we mm-hmm. knew that, we had, that slimmed down and we really put a lot more effort towards the retention stuff. I would, wouldn't you say that, Jess? Like, I kind of feel like that's when we were like, let's do the newsletter weekly and let's do the podcast. Yeah. And let's, once we knew kind of the formula for the top on the paid, then yeah. it was like, okay, they're coming in, they're signing up. So now we can, we can leave that running, but like, let's focus our efforts on what can we produce to keep them engaged. And I think it was, we had so much education to do on like, AB versus multivariate, what it is. And, and, you know, everyone always wanted to know, like, does it get you to stat sig? Right. And so we had a lot of like education to do around, like, you don't always have to hit stat sig, like at least you're getting signals. So it was, it had to be a lot of top of funnel because there was just so much education to be done on like, what is this thing? Yeah. 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 Everybody has been uh, misinformed about statistical significance. It's like, oh, if you look, look into Bayesian theory and it's like, uh, relax, you can tell like this is working better than this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like pretty easily. Yeah. And I was like, you want to spend five thousand more dollars just to just to get there about the rest of this yeah, so you can okay. say it's ninety five percent sure? Cause I'm like, it's at eighty, which is good enough for me, and we don't need to spend any more money on this. <laughs> totally. This has been such an amazing, amazing conversation, Amrita. Thank you so much for joining us and and taking the time. I know you're like on vacation right now. So uh, just today. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, still one day that we're recording. (laughs) One day you're off. You spent it with us. We really appreciate it. No, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. And I'll I'll be picking your brains for sure as I try to figure out what are we going to do with our content marketing. (laughs) Amazing. Gladly. We will be here anytime you need us. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to That's Marketing, Baby. If you dig what we're putting down, be sure to subscribe and share with your marketing besties because, you know, hot marketers don't gatekeep. And if you're like, this is not enough, I need more, we got you. Rants and Raves is the official newsletter of That's Marketing, Baby. Every week, Susan and I share one thing we love and loathe in the world of marketing. Get on the list at that'smarketingbaby.com. Okay, Okay. bye. bye. Bye.